Well, Ashfield is full of people from somewhere else uh, trying to feel at home in Australia. Maybe they're studying for a higher degree or they're learning the language, finding jobs, places to live. Uh, Their kids are going to school, they're making friends. Uh, But they love the things of home as well. Uh, And so as you walk down uh, Liverpool Road, you'll find Chinese herbalists and acupuncturists. Uh, There'll be Indian dress shops not too far away. There are grocery uh, grocery stores that stock Chinese, Korean, Indian, Nepalese, Thai, Fijian food. Uh, And the Chinese restaurants have as many Chinese eating there as Aussies. Uh, It's a similar sort of situation we have in these final chapters of Genesis. Uh, We've got uh, God's man in God's land. But the question we really need answering is, can you take God's place out of God's man? Jacob and his family are down in Egypt. They're surviving the famine. Life is good. In fact, they're being spoiled rotten. But it's not home. It's not home. It's not where God has promised that their future lies. So which way will they go? Will they settle down and forget their real home? Will they get wrapped up in the pleasures of Egypt? Will they look to Egypt as the answer to their problems and their hopes? Or will they look to the promised land? Will they keep remembering God's promises? Will they long for home? And that's where these chapters have something to teach us. Because we uh, live as strangers in this world. Just like the Chinese students or the arrivals from uh, Nepal or somewhere else. Uh, We enjoy where we are, but are we longing to go home? Are we longing for home? Are we hoping for a new heavens and a new earth? Are we longing for our inheritance? Are we hoping and trusting in God's promises uh, as we long for the end of the pain and the crying and the hurt? Well, let's look at Joseph. We're picking up the story in chapter 42. Joseph's in charge of the famine relief program. He's the saviour God has raised up to look after the Egyptians, but not just Egypt. Back in Canaan, where Jacob and the rest of the family are living, the famine is just as bad. When Jacob hears there's grain in Egypt, he sends his ten oldest sons off to buy it. Uh, It seems like, as we read the start of chapter 42, they've been avoiding Egypt. Uh, They know perhaps that food's there, but they don't really want to head down there for, well, I can't guess why, except for maybe they think they might meet Jacob or be reminded of what they've done, sorry, meet Joseph or find what they've, uh, be reminded of what they've done. But Jacob sends them off anyway. He keeps Benjamin, the youngest, at home. He's the new favourite. He won't risk him. Uh, When the brothers arrive in Egypt, Egypt, verse 6, they meet Joseph. They bow down to him. Uh, They bow down to him, just like that dream so many years ago that Joseph had. Uh, He knows who they are the moment he sees them, but they don't recognise him. Twenty years, at least, have passed. What will Jacob do? Well, he could respond with vengeance and retaliation. Simeon and Levi probably would have done that at least a while ago. They're at his mercy. And it was an interesting question at home groups uh, this week that, uh, that I attended. There was this discussion about 
how pure Joseph's motives really were in what he went on to do. Uh, Was there really a little payback there? But on the other hand, there is also this goal of rectification. He, He wants to restore and he wants to put them to the test and see what they've learned over the years. Have they learned from their mistakes before he lets on who he is? So first up, verse 9, he accused them of being spies. He refuses to believe them until they bring Benjamin back to prove their story. One of them must stay in prison. The rest can go home and fetch the youngest, just like Joseph himself had suffered. And at this point, the brothers start to realise that their past is coming back to haunt them. Their consciences are being pricked. Maybe their consciences have been bothering them for the whole two decades or so. Look at verse 21. They said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. All that time and they still hadn't forgotten what they'd done. It's often the way with our conscience, isn't it? It won't leave us alone no matter how many years go by. And Joseph's listening in. He's marking them on this test, this test of conscience and he's overcome with emotion. Uh, which is a hint, I think, that maybe there's not such vindictiveness as some of us might think. He turns away and weeps. It's not for the last time. He's a bit of a crybaby, really, in these chapters. And then, perhaps because Reuben was the one who stood up for him those years ago, Jacob puts, puts the second oldest in prison, Simeon. He's bound. The rest return to Canaan with their sacks full of grain. When poor old Jacob finds out what's happened, he's distraught. Verse 36, you've deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, now Simeon's no more and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. At which point Reuben pipes up with this very noble offer, unless you happen to be one of his sons, you may put both my sons to death if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. Jacob won't be convinced though. My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. (laughs) Except for the ten brothers who are surrounding him. If harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, you'll bring my grey head down to the grave. And so Simeon stays stuck in jail. We don't really know for how long. Until the food's gone at least and the matter comes to a head. Chapter 43 Uh, begins and Jacob Jacob says the food's run out, time to go back to Egypt, buy us some more food but now he knows what's coming. Verse 3, Judah says we can't go back without Benjamin. And then Judah gives his own personal guarantee. Uh, Verse 8, send the boy along with me uh, so that we and your children may not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible. If I don't bring him back and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Is there a double meaning there? Perhaps he has been feeling like he's been bearing the blame for Joseph's life. Maybe he has learned a thing or two. Maybe it's seeing the loss of Joseph, what it did to his father. 
And so poor old heartbroken Jacob agrees. Verse 14, may God grant you mercy and bring Simeon and Benjamin safely back. Which God is going to do? The brothers make it to Egypt. Verse 26, Joseph comes home. They bow down to him again. Joseph asks how dad is and then he sees Benjamin. Verse 29, his own mother's son. He asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out, looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there for what still won't be the last time in this story. When he comes back, he's dried his eyes, reapplied his eyeliner, if if the cartoons about Egyptians are true. Uh, It's time for lunch. And Joseph has another test, a test of jealousy. He seats them all according to age, which surprises, astonishes the brother, the brothers. And then when the food is served, the plates come out and then Benjamin gets a big platter. He gets five times as much. Will there be any jealousy on the part of the brothers? Any chance that they will do to Benjamin what they did to Joseph? I can imagine a few puzzled looks, maybe even from poor little Benjamin struggling to finish his huge platter. The trap's been set. Now's the time to spring it though. In the chapter 44, the cup's Uh, The sacks are filled with grain again and in this time into Benjamin's sack Joseph hides his silver cup. Uh, They head home. Joseph sends his servant after them. When the brothers are chased down they're they're sure that they've done nothing wrong. Verse 9, if any of your servants is found to have it he will die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. It's a foolish promise really when when we know that Benjamin does have it. Luckily, Joseph is not going to keep them to that promise though. The servant is only interested in the guilty one. Uh, Very well, he said, let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave, the rest of you are free to go. This is another part of the test. Will they abandon Benjamin the way they did Joseph? The bags are searched, it's found in Benjamin's sack, but look at their reaction. They pass Joseph's test. Verse 13, at this they tore their clothes, then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. I think they know that if they go back to their father without Benjamin, it's going to kill him. So maybe there's hope for our brothers yet. They get back to Joseph, he gives them another chance to abandon Benjamin. Verse 17, only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you can go but it truly does seem like they've learned their lesson. Judah speaks on behalf of the brothers. He explains that their father Jacob will die if he loses another son, verse 27. And then he concludes by offering himself in place of Benjamin, verse 33. At last it seems they're thinking of others, Uh, thinking of Benjamin, thinking of Jacob. Their rectification, their reformation is complete now for the reunion. It seems as if Joseph has wanted to forgive them but wants to see some repentance, some evidence of a heart change first. And so for Joseph, he witnesses that sort of offer of sacrifice. Well, that's enough to really set him off this time. He's just losing it completely now, the start of chapter 45. 
Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one but Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians who were outside the room heard and then Pharaoh's household heard about it as well. We think Joseph finally lost it. He's just caterwauling like a baby. And then he reveals himself to his brothers. The brothers, the brother they thought was dead is actually alive and they can't believe it. That's their first reaction. The second one is to be terrified. But Joseph reassures them. It's the wonderful perspective uh, on everything that's happened. I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And in a nutshell, verse 7 and 8, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to save your lives by great deliverance. It was not you who sent me here, but God. The brothers blame themselves. Yes, they did the wrong thing. Yes, it was evil. But God used their jealousy, used their evil action to save many people, to preserve them as a remnant, to fulfil his promises. And then Joseph goes on to organise that rescue. He sends the brothers back to Canaan to fetch Jacob and all their family and possessions and then brings them to Egypt where there's plenty of food for everyone. That's chapters 46 and 47. We'll jump over those today, other than to mention uh, the meeting that Jacob has with Pharaoh. Jacob arrives, Jacob sums up his life when he comes before Pharaoh. I don't think he's really complaining about it, but he just states the fact. Uh, Pharaoh asks him in 47.9 how old he is, and Jacob replies, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. They do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Few and difficult. (laughs) Uh, That's Jacob's summary of his life. 130 might seem like a pretty good innings to us, but according to his fathers, he's just a spring chicken. And there have been tough years as well. Mostly, I think, if we'd agree that it's due to Jacob's own trickery and deceit, he probably could have had life a bit easier if he'd been a bit more honourable, few and difficult. It's interesting if we compare it to how Isaac's life is described. Uh, Isaac, uh, in Genesis 35-28, we read, Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. Old and full of years. Well, listen to the summation of uh, Abraham's life. Genesis 25, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people. Full of years, but uh, Jacob's years have been few and difficult. Just hold that comparison in mind for a few moments. Few and difficult, and so it makes it much easier for, for Jacob to long for home. And we see that in chapters 48 to 50, he's longing for home. Things are great in Egypt, life is easy, food is plentiful. It would be easy for Jacob's family to just settle down, to become Egyptians. 
and yet God's future doesn't lie in Egypt. His promise lies back in Canaan. That's the promised land. And Jacob wants to make sure his sons remember that. Especially Joseph, I think, whose temptation to remain Egyptian would be stronger than the rest. And so at the end of chapter 47, as Jacob's life draws to an end, he summons Joseph into the bedroom and makes him promise to bury him with his fathers back in Canaan. And Joseph promises it. And then into chapter 48, with Jacob on his deathbed, Joseph gets summoned in again, this time with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and then reminds them of all God's promise, uh, all God's promises. Verse 3 of chapter 48, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers, I'll make you a community of peoples and I'll give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. And then he takes his two grandsons and he declares them to be under God's blessings as well, even though they were born in Egypt. These two sons, these two grandsons, will be every much a part of the family as Joseph and his brothers were. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt, before I came to you, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And then he gives them each a blessing, along with each of the other brothers. Some of those words are are good words. Others show that God will be judging the brothers for their actions. But the focus of all of those words of prophecy on all the twelve tribes is that their future lies in the promised land. Their future is not in Egypt. And so at the end of 49, Jacob dies, he's gathered to his people and when Joseph's finished weeping, again, uh, his father is embalmed, he's taken back to Canaan and he's buried with all the wealth and the pomp of Egypt. And it does seem as if Joseph remembers his father's words because as Genesis draws to a close and as Joseph's uh, life draws to a close, he makes that same request. Uh, Chapter 50, verse 24, God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, Egypt, to the land he promised Canaan and he made the brothers promise to take his bones back when they went. And so Joseph dies at the age of 110. Interestingly, it seems like his older brothers are still around. They embalm him, he's placed in a coffin in Egypt. Dies the second most powerful man in Egypt with the riches and the power and the honour that anyone could dream of. But despite all of that, he died with his eyes on something greater, on a greater prize, with his hope on God's promises. God's promises to make his family into a great nation and bring them back to another land, to the promised land, even though he never saw it. He hadn't seen it since the age of 16 when he left. And that's where it gets relevant for us, as we mentioned in the introduction, because Jacob and Joseph are really at the opposite extremes of life. One whose years are few and difficult. His temptation, well, it was just to lose hope, to despair, to doubt that God would ever come good, because he couldn't see any of God's blessing. Maybe that's you. 
But then on the other hand, there's Joseph who had, well, everything. And his temptation was to just get distracted by all the shiny things that were around him and get comfortable and blend in and just luxuriate in what life offered him at the moment and to forget where his future really lay. And maybe that's you. If your life's like Jacob, full of difficulty and frustration, the promises of God may seem an eternity away, you're tempted to give up. It's hard to see how all things are working for good. All you want to do is just sit down and give up. It's hard to show integrity and honesty when everyone treats you like rubbish. It's hard to keep serving in that ministry or that job when there's no fruit to see and no one notices. But maybe on the other hand, perhaps your life is like Joseph. You're doing fine. Maybe you're hoping for that promotion or the new boat or the next holiday or the new girlfriend or the top marks when perhaps instead you should be hoping for heaven, for God's reward, putting his kingdom first. Maybe for you the temptation is that you've lost sight of the riches of God's promises because you're too busy looking at this world's riches. Leave Egypt behind. Keep your eyes on the prize of God's promised lands. You don't belong here. Your true nature is found somewhere else. Your future is somewhere else. That's where your hope needs to be as well. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there. And so, whether you're Jacob this morning and you need encouragement, or perhaps whether you're Joseph and you need a wake-up call, look to God's promises. They're worth it. Eagerly await your Saviour as you live with him as your Lord. Long for home. It'll be worth it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for these stories. They're, they're, such, they're, they're cracker stories. They're, they're, they're such fun. Uh, and uh, we make a mistake of just seeing them as fun though. We, we pray that you'd help us to place ourselves in these pages to, to recognise our own uh, brokenness and selfishness. Uh, help us too to recognise our own tendencies to to not trust, to doubt your word, uh, our own tendencies too, not to, to long for home. We pray that you'd help us to, to recognise our identity is in heaven, uh, that's our future, and help us to act as heavenly citizens rather than earthly ones, to seek first your kingdom, that we might do it for the honour and the glory of Jesus. Amen.